Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. This, this is a Soul Fire production. Hello, fellow travelers. It's Bliss. I just wanted to remind you, if you are in the greater Santa Barbara area, Santa Barbara, California, Ojai, or Ventura, that Dr. Stu and I will be recording live, which means with a live audience, we'll be answering questions at Yoga Soup, which is at 28 Parker Way in Santa Barbara. If you're unable to join us in person, you can send your questions in advance to info at birthinginstincts.com. Enjoy the episode today, and I sure hope to see a whole bunch of you on Thursday. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and good middle of the night. It's Dr. Stu, and I'm in Redding, California, in my hotel room after two days of teaching breach, and I'm staring at myself all alone. Uh, this is a supplemental uh, podcast because the second half, or actually the two-thirds of it, is going to be an interview with Sally Ann Beresford that I did several weeks ago when I was in England. Uh, Bliss will be back with us at the next podcast. And as always, uh, we're grateful that you uh, tune in to listen to us. So what I wanted to do today was I wanted to just talk a little bit about what's going on uh, with me and with Breach. But first, I wanted to thank uh, my old student, Alyssa. Uh, on the way up to Redding, California, I took my horse up to Mariposa, California, where my horse Candelita is now going to be living with uh, Coco and Max uh, and her two dogs and her six ducks and her 15 ducklings and the gophers and ground squirrels and all the other animals that she's got up there and on her farm up in Mariposa. So I'm very grateful to her uh, for giving Candelita a new home while I'm traveling for the next several months. And this way she'll have love every single day which all of us need, by the way, every single day. So reach out to everybody that you know, not everybody, but somebody that you know every day to make sure that you get some oxytocin release because it's good for all of us. Speaking of oxytocin release, I want to really thank the people in Redding, California, especially Naomi of the uh, Redding Midwifery Group and their lovely birth center for hosting us for the last two days for a Reteach Breach Conference. And for Tessa for inviting me up here, uh, Tessa was formerly my student. Now she's the only midwife in a county of 12,000 people. I think it's Trinity County, California. Uh, so we need more midwives, obviously, and we need more midwives and birth workers who are trained to do the things that make my profession unique. You maybe have heard me say before that the purpose of an obstetrician is essentially moot if they don't know how to do breaches and twins and forceps and breech extractions, or they're not comfortable or confident in that because it's really the only thing I can think of that makes my profession unique. Um, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't see how anything else that an obstetrician does couldn't be done by somebody else. So um, maybe that's why they're not letting midwives do these sorts of things. Maybe they, are, maybe they secretly know that this is the case uh, because if midwives could do breaches and twins or they allowed them to do them, uh, then there'll be even more reason why we don't really need the generalist obstetrician anymore. We'd make all those academicians running those residency programs and making fees off of maintenance of certification from boards and being on all these committees and uh, would make them, it would make them uh, useless or redundant or whatever word you want to want to apply to them. But I'm really, really uh, happy to be, doing what I'm doing because as I travel around, I encounter people. There's so many good people out there who have so many good ideas and they're so stifled. I want to talk about that in a little bit. But um, so what I did the last couple of days was I, I, I gave a lecture on why breach birth is sort of vilified and about the um, what I call the trilogy of bias, which is confirmation bias, premature cognitive commitments and and um, uh, cognitive dissonance. 
And all three of those things, and if you need to, you can look them up real briefly, but everybody should probably know the first one and the third one. Confirmation bias is just basically viewing things from your, your prism and everything. You only see it that way. So the example, uh, just a cartoon that I use is two guys, one guy standing on one side of a six and the other guy standing on the other side of it, arguing back and forth, whether it's a six or a nine. So it's from your point of view and how you see things. And then there's there's uh, cognitive dissonance, which everyone should know what that is by now. That's where things that don't fit with your worldview make you very uncomfortable. It's why people who have one political view will only watch one network and other people with a different political view will only watch their network and the two shall never meet. Um, the brain does not like dissonant cognitions. The brain only likes uh, consonant cognitions. And so we try to make dissonant cognitions either disappear or into, into consonant cognitions. And by making them disappear, there's several ways you can do that. One is you can just diminish um, the value of the other side's opinion by ignoring it, cherry picking your data or vilifying or ridiculing your the person on the other side, which is sort of what's going on everywhere right now. If you don't agree with something, you're, you're spewing misinformation, you're a, some sort of ist, you know, misogynist, racist, transphobist, if that's a word. But, you know, you're, if you just disagree with something that they, they, rather than debating you, which they can't, they uh, label you. And by labeling you, they think that they've diminished you, but they haven't. They've really only diminished themselves. So we're dealing with a lot of these things. So that's what's going on with breech birth. How do I know that? Because I talked to so many women who have been exposed to what their doctors have told them about breech birth when they come in for a consult or they email me for a consult or they just you know message me on Instagram with a question about my doctor said this or my doctor handed me this paper and says that this is why we don't do breech deliveries. And it turns out it's the term breech trial from 22 years ago, which has been, I'm not gonna use the word debunked, but it's but it's been um, refuted in, by their own, by even their own authors found that two years later that the outcomes that they said were there were really not true. And that a lot of the things that were the problems in there were not even related to the method of delivery. So that paper really should not be used for anything anymore, but because of confirmation bias, and many other factors, it's still quoted as a definitive paper. Um, they've, they ignore all the other data since that time. So these women will tell me that their doctors say this, or the head will get stuck, or the cord will fall out, or no one does breaches anymore, all these sorts of things. And none of that's true. And to make a point of it, uh, and I love her very much for what she's doing. My, my colleague, Rick Safries, who you all know uh, from, the, she's the co-author of my Breach paper. And she's also um, the founder of Breach Without Borders. And she's working on a Breach Guidelines paper. And she sent me a draft to look at. And I'm not going to, because it's a draft, I'm not going to quote it or anything like that. But she points out some really important things about Breach Birth, which I thought would be great to um to hear. So she says the most important selection criteria is a highly motivated mother who strongly values vaginal birth, whether for cultural, medical, spiritual, or emotional reasons. I couldn't agree more. And generally, the selection criteria includes a motivated mother, a fetus that's healthy and thriving, a pregnancy with no medical absolute contraindication like placenta previa would be a good example. And being, and for home or birth center settings, uh, we'd like you to be at term for obvious reasons. And the, the exclusion criteria are extremely minimal. And that would be with a fetus with a known anomaly that would be indicated for a vaginal birth. Classic example would be gastroschisis, hydrocephalus, that sort of thing. Um, a baby with severe asymmetric growth re uh, restriction, probably not a good idea to be doing that, certainly not at home. Uh, a fetus that shows any compromise antenatally or in labor. Um, and a mother who essentially adamantly refuses to have a vaginal birth, even after being informed of the full pros and cons of all the choices. Uh, she chooses a C-section. That's certainly a legitimate reason not to uh, have a vaginal breech birth. But what's more important than what Rixa says is what should be using to um, 
not select somebody for vaginal birth is what should not be used to exclude people from a vaginal birth. And just like to go through a few of these things. One is first baby. I know that there are birth centers out there that will say, well, we'll, or actually breach centers at universities is what I'm talking about, who will say, well, we're going to start a breach center, but we're only going to take multips. Right? That is crazy because the success rate for, for primips in skilled hands is actually quite high, 80% plus. Um, some of the people that she's quoting have close to 100% success rates. Um, I know that that's probably not going to be possible in the world that we live in, but still, it just tells you that the success rates are really high. And it's the first time mom who really needs the vaginal delivery because she's the one who's more likely going to want a second or a third baby. And you don't want to submit her to those sorts of risks. Um, the position of the baby should rarely be used to exclude a vaginal breech birth. Incomplete breach is not a reason to be excluded. Uh, in a non-frank breach, if the cord is down low, that's not necessarily a reason to exclude somebody. Uh, but if you do, I mean, I understand that that's something that people could argue because uh, cord prolapse is never fun, but cord prolapse in a, in a incomplete or complete breach is not always a um, emergency. Uh, funny shaped head for the baby, like dolicocephaly is not a reason to be excluded. So if you hear your doctor saying these things, a nuchal cord is certainly not a reason to be excluded. A low AFI, absent any other signs of fetal distress, is not a reason to be excluded from a vaginal delivery. And in my own experience, frank breech babies tend to have lower AFIs. I don't have a definitive reason for that. I do believe that it's possible because of their position. They may be not perfusing their kidneys as well, the baby. And so they maybe make less urine, which of course is what most amniotic fluid is near term. That's just a theory. I, I, I can't explain it, but I've seen it over and over again which may be compounding the reason why they can't flip around is because not only are they like a folded up two by four, but they're um, then they don't make as much fluid either. So that's an interesting thing. A bicornate or unicornate uterus or a uterus didelphus is not a reason to tell the woman she can't have a vaginal birth. Um, I've had many, many successes with that. And sometimes they actually go quite fast. Being overdue, certainly not a reason. Um, let's see, a previous C-section or a VBAC is not would never be a reason to tell a woman she can't have a, a vaginal birth with a breach. A previous dissection is not a contraindication to breach or twins for that matter. Doing x-ray pelvimetry or MRI pelvimetry is not something that should be really done anymore. It's done in academia because they're trying to collect all the data they can. But in the, in the in real world, a clinically adequate pelvis is, as I lovingly say in my reteach breach, is a woman with a pelvis. It's not a um, pelvis, it has to measure certain ways because the pelvis is a dynamic organ. And the smallest diameters of the pelvis are generally when they're flat on your back and that's the position you're in when they're taking your MRI or your X-ray. So um, unless a woman's had a congenital anomaly of her pelvis or maybe a crushing pelvic accident, a uh, car accident or something, there's no reason to even consider the pelvis to be an issue. Maternal age should not be an issue. Um, an isolated ultrasound showing a deflexed head should not be an issue. You should be, you want to see the head flex, but it doesn't have to be flexed all the time. So these are just reasons why people are often excluded from a breach for, they'll find reasons. It's kind of like um, VBAC, the doctor will, it doesn't want to do VBAC, they'll continue to find reasons for that. And, and we've got to stop that. We've got to give women choices and we've got to bring breach back. And so I won't go on any more about that, but if, you're interested in taking a course from uh, the Breach Without Borders, you can go to their website or from the Reteach Breach, you can go to my website and you can share that with your colleagues and friends because midwives right now are the, are the um, torchbearers of the future for these skills until we do something about the medical model. This, these are the people that are going to keep the skills alive because those of us that learned it in medical school or residency as my, my loving friends like Elliot um, and um, my mentor, Dr. Wu, once said in the Heads Up documentary, um, we're dying off. And we don't wanna die off, but we are dying off. Um, speaking of dying off, uh, I think we mentioned last week, and I just wanna mention again, the sadness we had of the passing of Dr. Jake Goldberg here in Los Angeles. and. Uh, Condolences to 
all those who loved him. Um, okay, I'm gonna move on to a different topic real quickly right now. There was a uh, appeal by the Physicians for Informed Consent. Oh, I'm not wearing their t-shirt today, but I often wear their t-shirt. Physician for Informed Consent is a patient's rights group of, and it's actually a uh, private practice physician's rights group uh, that wants to continue with the idea of the doctor-patient relationship and individualization of decision-making. And they put out an appeal for us to write the California legislature about Assembly Bill 2098. For those of you who aren't familiar with that, this is a bill that essentially says, and I'm paraphrasing, that if you um, say something that goes against what the medical board or the CDC or the AMA or ACOG or anybody else says, regarding certain topics, including the vaccine or including um, uh, treatments for the vaccine or even th other things they make like basically this entire podcast, um, then you may be guilty of unprofessional conduct and you can have your license reviewed or revoked by the, and you can have your board certification, which I don't have anyway, uh, by the Federation of State Medical Boards, a tyrannical organization. Um, that they can revoke your boards for just saying things that are different from the party line. And this is a violation of every tenant of medical ethics. And they sent some sample letters, which were very, very well written, obviously written by organizations and lawyers to be respectful of the people that they're writing to, which is the California legislation. Well, yours truly decided I would take a slightly different tact. And although um, the lawyer for PIC helped revise it slightly. Um, the, the, te the tenor of the letter is still there. And I'd like to read it to you. It goes um, to the California legislature's RE opposition for AB 2098. Dear sirs, thank you for taking the time to read my short letter. Those that are proponents of Assembly Bill 2098 are supporting an unconstitutional and unethical gag order. It's not complicated. I am sure you understand this and have heard the legitimate counter arguments. If you are still planning to vote for this bill, you are simply a bad human being. And should it pass, doctors will not be complying with its stupidity and illegality. With intentional ambiguity like, quote, contemporary scientific consensus, unquote, you simply give the medical board unlimited power to remove licenses based on political bias. How did anyone up there in Sacramento think this was a good idea? Supporters of Assembly Bill 2098 need a lesson in Americanism and common sense and the code of medical ethics instead of wasting the people's time with such totalitarian nonsense. This bill will be challenged in court, it will be struck down, and its political supporters will not escape culpability. The bill authors should try focusing on the problems real people care about, such as the price of diesel fuel or homelessness or the border. I'm just throwing that in, that's not in the letter rather than political stunts. Vote no on Assembly Bill 2098 and stop wasting our time. Sincerely, Stuart J. Fishbein, MD. So um, it feels good for me to vent like that. It feels good for me to put something on paper and send it off. It sort of takes a little bit out of my inner self to get it out of there because we all have this brewing inside of us because there's something really weird going on right now. There's a tyranny going on in the world in so many aspects, and it and it all seems so stupid. I mean, if I'm not saying tyranny is ever good, but at least at least they could be right once in a while. The old saying about a blind squirrel finding a nut every now and then. But these guys are wrong on everything. And as I meet as I meet birthkeepers all over the world, I hear the same stories all over the you know when I travel around the country this past few months. Everything they're telling me that's happening the 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 things that are happening in their state legislatures, the things that doctors are saying to people, the way the medical system is handling pregnancy or the vaccine, or, I mean, we've been, as Bliss likes to say a lot of times, this whole thing that we've seen the last two years with being gaslit about the vaccine, it's been going on in the medical uh, obstetrical world for a really long time. And then as I read from Dissolving Illusions, we've seen it going on in the vac vaccinology world for over a hundred years. 
and it's still going on and they seem to be wrong on everything that they do. Something's got to give because it's building. And maybe that's part of their plan is just to build it up so that there's complete chaos and we can't comply with that. And we're not going to fix them. Um, I don't know that elections will do anything. I really don't know where this is going to go, but I do know that what's happening in obstetrics with breech birth, with VBAC, with twin birth, with, uh, failure to give autonomy and decision-making and respect uh, informed consent and all that stuff is, is just wrong. Let's, let's take a moment and talk about one of our sponsors. Let's talk about Element, LMNT. L-M-N-T. L-M-N-T. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a uh, electrolyte mix. Comes in packets, you mix it in water, eco-friendly, uh, very tasty, comes in multiple flavors. And I actually had all the flavors lined up on my phone and then I dropped it. So I know that you like your mango chili, uh, but there's whole other, there's watermelon and there's uh, chocolate, something chocolate with it in it and mm-hmm. a bunch of great flavors. And it's got all the good stuff in it that, that we really need to stay healthy with uh, none of the, as Liz likes to say. None of the BS. None of the BS, right. Yeah, yeah. So, so um you know, it's good for birth workers. It's good for women in labor. It's good for men working on, on their yard or in their garden and, and gr- growing their own food farm to table, or when they're, when they're mowing the South 40 at the 350 acre, 300 acre place. I mean, Element will be our staple drink at the uh, Kentucky center, right? Yeah, Sure. Right. Absolutely. So um, if you go to drinkelement.com, that's drinklmnt.com, and put in a backslash birthing instincts, you can get a free sample pack uh, for only the cost of shipping, which I think is five bucks. So we hope that you'll support them. Um, they've been with us for a while now, and we really appreciate our long-term sponsors. So thank you, Element. Okay, I'm taking a deep breath. So let's get to our guest. A few weeks back, I was in England and I had the opportunity to take the train up to Stratford-upon-Avon and visit with Sally Ann Beresford. Uh, Sally Ann Beresford is a uh, doula, but she's actually more than a doula and she's been doing for more than 20 years. She has been taking care of women, probably cared for more than 500 women. Uh, She speaks at conferences, she lectures student midwives, she mentors new doulas, and she's also written a book called The Labor of Love the ultimate guide to being a birth partner. Uh, you can find her at, at the ultimate birth partner on Instagram. Uh, we spent uh, about 40 minutes or so chatting at the Rose and Crown pub, which was delightful. Uh, in the background, you might hear some people cheering for a soccer match or uh, a bus driving, maybe a double-decker bus driving by. It's very classically Britain, which I, I love. And we talked birth. And we... Uh, talked a little bit about the British system, and I learned some things that although it's different, it's very much the same when it comes to the problems. Problems seem to be universal. They have the same mentality towards birth as illness and not normal. They have the same thing with interventions. They use syntocin, which is their pitocin. We discussed the difference between oxytocin and syntocin. And um, We talked even about physiologically managed cesarean sections. So it's going to be an interesting conversation that I hope you'll enjoy. Um, These international opportunities don't come along that often. Hopefully they'll open up in the next year and we'll have a lot more of them. So without further ado, here's my interview with Sally Ann Beresford from uh, May of 2022 in a pub called the Rosen Crown in England. Hi, everybody. It's the second in a series of interviews I'm doing live from England. Well, it won't be live for you, but it's live for me. I'm at the Rose and Crown pub with the great Sally Ann Beresford, author of The Ultimate Birth Partner. Yeah, Labor of Love. Yeah. Labor of Love. And any other books? Um, I've got one in the pipeline, but it hasn't got a name yet. And she has been nice enough to meet me up here in Stratford upon Avon. Yeah. The birthplace of who? Uh, Shakespeare. William Shakespeare, yeah. correct. And we went to Shakespeare's birthplace home and to his school. Yeah. And I got Bliss a present, which I'm not going to tell her what it is yet. <laughs> and uh, so we're here 
doing one of the, our short interviews because we're in a pub, we're in a pub on public Wi-Fi. Uh, but I'm just so excited to be traveling around England and meeting some great birth workers who I've been lucky enough to met online, but never in person before. And Sally and I have just spent the morning chatting away and tried not to chat on too many subjects because we always know that the first thing we talk about, or the first time we talk about something, it's always the best time we talk about it. But um, I wanted to just say, first of all, how do people find you on uh, Instagram? Um, I'm at the ultimate birth partner on Instagram. And you also have a podcast. I do. And that is called the ultimate birth partner podcast. Um, I've recorded 60 episodes so far, and I'm just about to start recording season three. Okay. So you were telling me uh, when we were walking, you were telling me about a woman whose first birth was almost so natural that she didn't even know it was happening yeah and then what happened in her second birth and i thought it was a great story and so i told you to stop talking so that yeah. we could do it live the first time because i get as i said the first time is always the best time so tell us a little bit about it because i think people that listen to my, my podcast and listen to your podcast are going to find this story classic yeah absolutely so i'm a doula and i've been working in this field for about 20 years now and one of the things that I noticed um, when I work with clients is that they, um, they they need a lot of education. And in this particular story, the woman herself, um, she didn't she didn't have much education. She just basically went into labor, assuming that she had um, constipation. She didn't understand that you can feel sensations throughout labor in a variety of places. And in, in her experience, it wasn't where she had assumed it would be. So um, she, she felt constipated. She was in labor all night. And the next morning she um, contacted me and said, I don't feel right. I'm not sure what's going on. Um, and I offered to pop round. And um, by the time I got there, her baby was out. It had been born really quickly, really simply. And she'd experienced what I shared with her was the fetus ejection reflex. So what happened was she, she couldn't have stopped pushing if she tried. Her body just took over and, you know, her baby was born. So when she was pregnant with her next baby um, and she wanted to... Before, before you go on, on to that, I just want to... Just want to emphasize the fact that that because she, for whatever reason, didn't realize that she was in labor, it turns out it was probably a really, really good thing. Yeah, because she could stay in. She didn't get into her cognitive brain and get tied up about, well, now this is happening. So what am I supposed to do next? Should I be calling? Should I be going to the hospital? Should I be what should I be doing? She just let her body do its thing. And she thought, well, this is I don't know what she thought. But she clearly um, didn't interfere with the process. Yeah. And, and like you say, she wasn't thinking. So in many respects, it was so perfect because she didn't she didn't her mind didn't stop what was happening to her. It just allowed it to flow. Um, and in hindsight, the things that she were feeling were classically great stuff yeah absolutely right i yeah. mean when when we as practitioners hear a woman start saying that i'm feeling like i have to poop or whatever else we're delighted yeah absolutely <laughs> right. yeah yeah so it was, it was really really interesting and debriefing that with her afterwards talking about her experience was fascinating and um when she was as i say when she was pregnant again having to talk to her about the difference she, she chose a home birth this time she chose to give birth with um nhs midwives as we're in the uk and she i had to explain to her that it might be very very different for her to have people around when she was in labor this time because she didn't have that the first time it was just her and her husband, who, again, I think was as shocked and surprised that a baby came out of her body as, as she was, because she she hadn't thought that that's what she was experiencing. She thought she was just severely constipated. And yet she was opening her bowels regularly. So it was it was quite a surprise that she that she did, in fact, feel that that was what was going on. Um, so, yeah, second time around, she um, we spoke a lot in detail in the preparation period about what it might feel like for her giving birth surrounded by other people. 
And it unfortunately came true. I don't know. I, I said to you, I wasn't sure whether my conversation with her had influenced her in any way. But certainly she really struggled to push out her baby because there were people uh, making a lot of noise. There was lots of questions, a lot of analyzing the midwives asking questions like, um, you know, are you feeling anything yet? Do you feel like you need to poo? Do you feel like you need to push? And there was this constant analytical questions going on. And she kept having to say, no, not yet. I'm not sure. I don't know. And inevitably, what I believe happened is she began pushing without an overwhelming urge. She actually began to push before she was ready purely because she needed to feel like she was doing something because I think the midwives made her think that something could be wrong if she wasn't feeling those sensations so she struggled she really struggled to get her baby out and um, it was a very long and very difficult second stage um, which she did succeed in the end after you know we, we were able to I was able to have a very quiet word with her and just say look you know please don't push until you're ready please follow your body please go with the flow and if you're having a period of time where you don't feel like you want to push, then don't push. Don't. Yeah, exactly. So, so were both of her births planned to be at home? No, the first one was meant to be in hospital. <laughs> That's what I love. Yeah. So yeah. what happens in England when someone accidentally delivers at home? Do they then end up going to the hospital or do they stay home? And does the national health service send a team over to check them out? Or do they just not do anything and they just stay home because I think I think the vast majority are encouraged to go in I think that the uh, paramedics that turn up often feel that their next step is to transfer the mother and the baby and the partner into the hospital um if you're smart and you you know <laughs> that you know that you can decline you can say no thank you so in this instance I was there just after the baby was born within a few minutes of that first birth and was able to say, please don't think you've got to go in. If you want to go in, if you feel that there's a reason, a benefit to you, then you can, but otherwise you can decline. And in fact, what then happened was a midwife came out to them at home and they were then um, taken care of by a midwife because they said no thank you to the transfer Um which worked out really, really well. And the government, them. the government provides for that. Then. Yeah. So, right. um, in theory, at that point, pre-COVID, uh, if she'd have booked a home birth, she would have had those midwives come out to her anyway. Um, the the fact that she hadn't booked a midwife, um, you know, was was immaterial because I was able to get involved and say to her, you know, all we need to do is request that someone comes out to you. And if you had given birth in the hospital and gone home after a few hours, they would send out a community midwife anyway. So it was it was understandable that they would eventually find someone to pop out and do the checks and the tests that they needed to and make sure that both the mum and the baby were comfortable. But as she'd had this really powerful experience, she was so filled with oxytocin and so high with the capabilities of what her body had just achieved she just she was just in another world she was just it was so beautiful to watch and witness. yeah and, it, and it's great and so just the the um the ocd first part of me wonders like so did the paramedics cut the cord did the, nobody cut the cord did the placenta come out before the paramedics got there uh, and how, how did that all work? And and she didn't bleed to death, obviously. No, no. I and the think, baby didn't get too much hemoglobin. Right? No, no, no. None of that. I okay. think because I was there, I was able to say, don't don't cut the cord. And the baby was allowed to I say allowed. Um, the baby was left skin to skin with the mother. But I think had the paramedics been there without somebody who knew what was going on they probably would have because in the UK I don't know if you know this that there's um there's a, a script that's read out by the ambulance service that recommends finding a shoelace to mm -hmm. tie up the cord mm -hmm. with it's probably a dirty shoelace at that so um yeah which is which by the way is okay to use a dirty shoelace in, a, in the case where you need to tie the cord off but but the idea of needing to tie the cord off, I, I can't really think off the top of my head too many indications mm. where you need to tie the cord. Obviously, if a cord tore, you would need to tie it off. And mm. tying it off with any anything 
it doesn't have to be sterile. That's not, it's not a sterile procedure. It's too far away from the baby to yeah. actually really make a difference at that point. So yeah, yeah. An interesting question for you. I did have a client whose um, cord broke, snapped. Mm -hmm. um, she, she gave birth at home, wasn't meant to, she was meant to have a hospital birth, but she, um, she did have a very quick, fast labor and I was present and her cord snapped. Mm -hmm. What causes that? Well, uh, clearly it's caused either by the cord having a very poor insertion. So it's a marginal insertion or a velamentous insertion. Or if, if the woman is squatting or is on all fours and the distance from the baby to the floor right. is longer than a, a short cord, then you're going to have that happen to us. We had that happen to us once in a twin birth where the first twin, right. we turned our back on her for like a second and mom went, uh, and the first baby fell out from a squatting position and the cord snapped right. because it wasn't long enough to make it all the way down to the floor. Okay. And when that happens, you just, you know, you, you grab the and fetal <laughs> part and you hold it with your fingers until you can find a shoelace or a cord clamp right. in that matter, or whatever else you got to find. Some dental floss is actually mm -hmm. a, something you can use as well to tie it off, but that's really the only reason to tie it off. But it's either the cord has a, a very weak insertion or there's a sudden tension on the cord, like, going from a, a, a lax cord and then, and because the baby's weight of seven pounds or whatever else, and it just happens to snap the cord, that's what will happen. It, right? it was the most interesting thing. It's a bit like when the hose pipe comes off at the end of the hose and all of a sudden the water just sprays everywhere. There was blood all over the walls. And I was like, where's that coming from? And then I realized the cord had snapped and uh, got hold of both ends really quickly. Um, yeah, the other end isn't as important because that blood in there is not going to, you're not going to be able to get it back into the baby and it's not mom's blood. So right. it's just going to drain out of the placenta sooner or later. But yeah, obviously you don't want it squirting on the wall. No, it was, it was just a, <laughs> a real shock. Yeah, we've had, we've had to clean some walls ourselves <laughs> in our day. Sometimes a vacuum will pop off when we're doing a vacuum at home and it's like everybody around gets sprayed with, with, but, anyway. but we don't really seem to care. Nobody's like really worried about it. We're not wearing our hazmat suits. We're not no. that concerned about it. Tell us about Bamboobies, Bliss. They're one of our sponsors. They've been a sponsor for us for a long time. Bamboobies has really stepped up and been a major contributor to this podcast. And we're so thankful. They are a great company that um, is committed to the comfort for mom and baby. They've got great eco-conscious line um, that I love coming from bamboo breast pads to uh, nursing tanks, wonderful teas and salves, um, all uh, focused on, on the comfort of mom and baby and making sure that the environment is taken care of as well. So go check them out. And Stu's got a wonderful code for you so that yeah. you can use that to yeah. support so go us to their website, Bamboobies. Yeah, go to their website, bamboobies.com and go to their boutique, uh, their online store and buy some stuff. And then when you check out, <laughs> <laughs> when you check out, um, put fill in, up your cart, put in the code word <laughs> instincts and you get 25% off. So that's bamboobies.com code word instincts for 25% off of your purchase. Thanks, Bamboobies. Thanks, Bamboobies. So that was her first case. And in the second case, you feel like, as we know, usually multips go quickly. So if yeah. a woman has this type of first birth, you're gonna expect her, and she's probably been prepped in her mind that she's this is gonna be a real piece of cake in her second birth. Mm. But you think that this was really a case where the, the midwives from your experience were probably more detrimental than they were beneficial. I think so. I mean, from my from from what I witnessed in that experience was that the midwives were just very analytical and therefore I think the oxytocin levels were just not as high. And she was just really, really struggling with the instructions, like the idea that with her first birth, there was no instruction. Her baby, her body just worked perfectly and her baby just was born. Whereas this time there was all of these things that she had to think about. Am I feeling it this way? Am I feeling it that way? Um, and it was really, really hard to instill the confidence in her that she just needs to relax and, and not listen. Because of course, when you have got people in the room that are talking their talk and saying the things that they want to ask you, you can't stop those words from coming out of their mouths. Once they're out, it's easy to lean in and whisper and say, follow your body, you're doing great. 
but those things were still being spoken to her and it is is very very difficult to um you know to, to prevent someone from experiencing those words and not think maybe I'm not doing it right maybe something's not not going well why is it taking so long and yeah her second birth was much harder much longer much more painful than her first which is you know yeah and it's interesting it reminds me of something that I learned from the midwives and the one that I remember most would be my friend Alex who talked about midwives being like ninjas mm. and that you know, there are some expectations from the husband or the, the wife that a midwife is going to be, well, why do I need a doula? I have a midwife. And it's like, well, no, your midwife is not there to coach you through every contraction or to massage your butt or to rebozo you or to bring you food or bring you drink. That we're going to do that if you don't have anybody else's helping you. But I, in an ideal situation, you don't even know we're there. Mm. And my role, because I'm a, first of all, because I'm a male and because I'm an OB, I tend to try to stay out of the room as much as possible. For this very much very exact reason is that is that when people are drawn into their own head um, labor becomes dysfunctional and, and yeah. this is just you, the story you were telling me was just so classic and i thought it would be really a good example for people to hear has she had a third baby yet or no? no i don't no. think she'll have any more oh okay. <laughs> bless her okay. um so one of the other things we, as we walked around we had this really great conversation we've walked around um Stratford upon Avon. I yeah. keep, keep, have to get it, it it right. It's such a it's these are pretty villages. It's so much bigger than uh, Shoreham, which was this tiny little village. This is a touristy village right now, and we're here on a Sunday, so it's uh, a, a hectic going on. And there's a there's a, a soccer match going on on the televisions in the bar, so you're going to every now and then hear some screaming. But um, we also talked about um, the the question about people just following along and and doing things against their own interest, against common sense, because they just comply. Mm. And we were talking about it in the sense of the vaccine, but we we're also talking about it in the sense of the obstetrical world and why people will just take um, something that's said to them and they will just not question it. Yeah. And you had some thoughts about that. Do you want to just say a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, I struggle, of course, you know, I can work with clients in the antenatal period and we can talk about their um, body's ability to give birth physiologically if that is the birth that they're choosing. But of course, then if they're invited to an appointment with a midwife or an obstetrician of any kind within the hospitals around here, you know, they are exposed to... Um, scare tactics coercion things about you know oh the baby's too big too small you're you're too old you're too fat too thin what you know whatever they're told that helps them to conform to the behavior that the doctor seems to want them to do i.e have an induction at 39 weeks or you know be be convinced to have a, a glucose tolerance test that they maybe don't want anything anything that they are exposed to they don't question even though we are constantly having conversations about body autonomy about their own ability to make decisions about the kind of questions they ask and it is it's so normal for me to on a daily basis receive messages from clients saying oh I, i've been told i have to have another scan and, you know, we know that if the later in pregnancy, if you have a scan, the more likely you are to end up with interventions. Um, you're more likely to end up with an induction or a, or a cesarean section purely because of the lack of trust, that that feeling, that starting point of you starting to think, maybe I can't do this. Maybe I'm not capable of giving birth physiologically. And it just starts the ball rolling. And you're so vulnerable at the end of pregnancy anyway. And, um, and you said also that the way they're counseled is sort of you think it's a fear of, of being sued or a fear of liability. Even in England, you feel that from way. The care, yeah, from the care providers, definitely. I can't work out, you know, what it is. Why, why are so many obstetricians keen to get women to have inductions at 39 weeks? Because I don't feel it's a financial incentive for them in the UK. Not in your, Yeah, I was going to bring that up. Yeah. In my country, there's a financial incentive in just about everything that's done. Um, the more testing you do, the more money you make. The, the, when you don't recommend something, you don't get paid for it. So, so, but in the National Health Service, it's all a flat fee. It's kind of like being in the Kaiser system, you know, where 
extra testing doesn't really cost anything or doesn't cost the client anything and the doctor doesn't make anything extra. So that's the way it is here. And yet it goes on here exactly the same mm. well, as from, it does in, in the United States. From my understanding, the, the money follows the woman and there's three different packages. There's the antenatal package. There's the intrapartum package, meaning that during the birth, and then there's the postnatal package. So actually, if a woman attends an appointment with an obstetrician during pregnancy, and they do or say something that offends her to the point where she then switches to a different hospital, they actually lose money because the money will follow the woman. So they actually lose that pot, that little bit of money that they would get to provide her with care during her labor and birth, it will be gone. So really it's, it's, it's more of an incentive for them to keep them. And it's only the women who, you know, um, start to look around that realize that actually if you look at induction for an example you might have one hospital in your local area that does induction at term plus seven you might have another one that induces at term plus 10 another that chooses term plus 12 and if you go to a midwife led unit you get term plus 14 well of course you can decline induction anyway but nobody really understands that they can do that but if you have got the threat of induction at term plus seven, you can just switch hospitals, assuming that they, you know, they have availability, which most do. You can switch to, to and buy yourself a whole nother week. So, it, you know, it's interesting that the people need to start when they're choosing the location of their birth. They need to start looking around and seeing what they've got available to them locally and what the philosophies of that particular hospital are. And do the women know this ahead of time? Um, because if they did, why would they pick the term plus seven hospital in the first place, unless it's just conveniently local? But also, don't they know that they can refuse that the term plus seven hospital and say, well, it's I'm term plus eight and I'm not coming in? Yeah, I think that it, it it's really difficult. And that's the part that I don't think people often realize. I mean, I, I well, that's, was, that's the problem is that. Yeah. Um, that's what we try to do. That's what you try to do. I try to yeah. do all our friends Educate. in the birth worker world yeah. that are, are, have been so gracious to me uh, across country and, and here now and on the, over across the pond. Yeah. Um, we're, you know, we are, we, we talked a little earlier too about how lucky we are to have a community of people who no matter where we are, who we are, we, 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 we're gracious to each other. We're, we're, yeah. we're, we're friendly to each other and we're supportive of each other. And when I see this going on, um, and I hear it's going on here yeah. for different, maybe different motivational reasons, then it tells me, even convinces me more that although I think that the, it's sinister in America for the monetary reasons, it's a much, much deeper problem in the medical model, which is why the medical model can't be fixed. It cannot be saved. Yeah. And why, you know, we are manifesting something new. You, you, people, you have people here talking about it. And we have people in America talking about it. I'm sure there are people in other countries that will listen to this. Yeah, It needs to start. Women need to look at alternatives. They need to be able to understand that what they're being told isn't necessarily true. And yeah. often it's actually not true. And they need to be able to challenge that. And you can challenge that in ways that are not confrontational by saying, could you give me some data on that? Could you tell me what happens if I choose not to do that? And then if they, and if someone then suddenly says, well, your baby will die, well, that is a as red a flag as you can possibly get that this is not somebody who's going to support you. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Um, I, I think it, it is really, really helpful. And I think to know is helpful to know that Instagram podcasts like this one are the ones that is getting the word out. I mean, I've got a book and I know lots of other people have got books that are, you know, that information is in the books and people are reading those books and they are learning. But there's something about the spoken word, about going live on, on Instagram, being on podcasts, somebody literally listening to people like, you know, yourselves talking about your rights, your human rights for childbirth um, that really do, it sinks in much, much better. Um, and I think that people are starting to realize we just need more and more pregnant families to start engaging, don't we? And listening. To yeah. Us. I mean, our conversation went all over the place. Today. You even brought you brought up Michelle O'Don. Yes. And we talked about microbiome and epigenetics and all that stuff like that. And Michelle, you said Michelle said what? I'm not sure what you mean. Oh, well, I think we talked about the fact that that late, women would have a harder time laboring 
Oh, what you're saying is, and we talked about in the future with all the C sections, would they be able to labor? Would they be able to? Yes, yes. So I trained with Michelle O'Don. So he did my doula training. And um, what a fascinating man. I mean, obviously, he's written many, many books and talked about. Um, you know the 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 world and how it will evolve how we evolve as species and how you know and it's it's so in depth because he's such a bright and smart man but yeah he he um gave a talk that i heard in los angeles one time and maybe i've said it on the podcast before but he talked about pre-labor cesarean section as being the worst of all of the things uh he didn't really get into induction in that lecture but but the pre-labor cesarean section where a woman doesn't go into labor on yeah. its own and the baby is never exposed to mother maternal oxytocin because pitocin will then supplant oxytocin and pitocin only does one thing it makes the uterus contract but it doesn't do all the other things that pitocin does that oxytocin does mm -hmm. and one of the things he thinks that if if a, if a female fetus is not exposed to oxytocin that female uterus may not develop oxytocin receptors and then 30, 20 or 30 years from now, when that woman is supposed to go into labor and she's secreting oxytocin, her uterus doesn't respond properly. Yeah. Right. So do you think the same all makes would be, sense? Do you think the same would be true for syntocin on? Yes. Right. Syntocin is your pitocin, right? Yes. Yes. Right. So okay. it's a synthetic pitocin. It's, right. It's so the, yeah, it's not the, it doesn't when you when you when you get a drip of syntocin or pitocin, you don't feel happy. It's, it's not the it's not the same as oxytocin, which is what you're saying. Yeah, no. It doesn't cause milk letdown. It's, and it, it's, it it's... replaces your body from producing it Correct. in the first place, which is why it affects bonding in Correct. those early in the the early hours because you're not your your body eventually gets there, but you know you, your your body's not aware that you've just gone through this process. Yeah, you know, Celian, it all gets back to the idea that nature knows what it's doing. Yes. Sometimes it screws up, but most of the time it doesn't. And yet in every single pregnancy, the medical model wants to alter what nature does in not just one way, but all along the course of action, Yeah, all the way across. So yeah. we've talked about it before from inducing labor to giving vitamin K to babies that are born vitamin K deficient to, to um, not skin to skinning, to washing babies off to, yeah. Um, yeah, that whole thing. I mean, we could go on and on and on and on from early, be from before, during, putting a woman on her back, um, washing off her bottom with betadine, which yeah. is iodine, um, before they deliver vaginally. It's like, I mean, everything that they do, taking a baby to a warmer, um, cutting the cord immediately. No other mammal would do, have any of those things I just discussed no. would be done with any other mammal, and yet they're done with humans. And we're, we're so cocky to think that all this stuff isn't going to alter something and you know and how and what it alters is going to be very difficult to pin down because so many things in our environment are changing so fast but it has to have ripple effects yeah absolutely absolutely that's why i think getting the word out about physiological birth is so important because if if people understand that the only way to succeed in having a birth. So as, I don't know if you've heard me say this before, but I describe that there's only three types of birth. There's physiological birth, there's managed birth, and there's abdominal birth, cesarean. There isn't anything else. You're either having an untouched birth where nobody does anything to you, does not disturb you, and leaves you to give birth as you were intended to, or someone is doing something to manage you, cervical sweeps, vaginal examinations, um, anything. Restricting your, in, restricting your intake. Exactly. Starting and an IV. Exactly. Even a recommendation of a position. You know, I talk to my clients about this all the time. You know, I'm not there as a doula to say what they should be doing. I want them to instinctively find positions. If they look me in the eye and say, I'm not comfortable, then I'll say, okay, let's change your position and find something you are comfortable in. But this isn't about me doing a million and one things to that person. If I can sit in the corner of the room with my hands underneath my bottom, doing absolutely nothing for that entire labor and birth, that has been the most amazing birth. The only times I need to step in and do anything um, 
are, you know, if there really is something that she's expressing that she wants me to do. And, and I think that that's so important that people understand, it. you know, vaginal birth used to be called normal or natural. Yes. It's, yeah. There's nothing normal or natural about what is going on with vaginal births these days. So it's physiological birth, managed birth or cesarean birth. You can't have it both ways. It has to be physiological or it's not. Yeah, and I would just add, when you said that the woman says, well, I'm not comfortable, um, and you said, well, let's move you into a position where you might be comfortable, I, I'm not sure that promising they'll, that you'll find a comfortable position is necessarily possible in labor. I mean, it's good to educate people ahead of time and saying, yes, there'll be moments where you'll have some a breather, you'll have some space, but this may not be very comfortable. There are things that we can do to, to deal with discomfort, yeah. all kinds of things, both physiologic and mental that we can do. There's hypnobirthing uh, as Aaron does. There's getting in the water or the shower. There's rebozo, there's manipulate or uh, moving. There's music, there's uh, being distracted, kissing your partner. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's all kinds of things you can do, but you're never gonna quite be, I don't want anyone to expect to be- Comfortable. Perfectly comfortable. (laughs) Because, yeah, nature didn't design it that way. And, no. and, uh, and, and the Bible tells us so. <laughs> but the, but that's, that's the interesting thing about expectations, isn't it? Is if you talk about those things in the antenatal period and you look at ways to, you know, get into positions that are, you know, really physiologically easy, when a woman does, does adopt those positions, typically they don't question them because their brain is so deep down into that oxytocic state that they wouldn't even know if they were feeling comfortable or uncomfortable because they're they're just in another place. And um, I had a client once, absolutely brilliant story, where she was having her second baby. Her first had been a cesarean section and she'd asked me to support her at her home birth. And um, every single time that she had a contraction, she would raise her right leg onto the arm of the chair of her sofa And then she would go back, bring it back down, rest into a position, and then the next surge would come and she'd do the same again. And when I spoke to her in the postnatal period about what she did, she had no recollection of ever raising her right leg. Now, if I'd have said to her, every time you have a contraction, what I'd really like you to do is raise your right leg, that would have been completely foreign to her. But what she did was clearly know that she needed to make more space on that side for the baby and she instinctively moved into that position every single time without knowing thinking realizing she had no recollection of that and you know that is what physiological birth is it's about the the, the body doing its thing to na- to help your baby navigate its way out of the pelvis um, and it's just miraculous and when you watch it and when you sit back and you observe that happening it's just you couldn't do anything but just have a hundred percent trust in in the body perfectly said and you know what we're going to probably leave it at that i'm going to sum up by saying a couple of wonderful things first of all we're sitting in a pub and i'm (laughs) watching people walk down the street here in stratford upon avon and i just watched a red double decker bus go by (laughs) and i see red phone booths down you know those classic red phone booths and there's a soccer match on the television and probably people playing darts in the back and I took the train to get up here and I've been sitting next to a lovely, lovely lady who speaks with a lovely British accent, which everyone who <laughs> listens to me knows how much I love a British accent, according even even my uh, my Siri uh, is British, um, is British right? <laughs> so um, listen, your hospitality has been great. It's been really uh, a treat to be able to come up here for the day. Uh, I've, I've just had a great time and this was a spontaneous trip to come to London. Uh, it's was brilliant (laughs) as the British like to say, uh, on my part, because I've, it's been just, it's been a wonderful thing. And you, your hospitality, Sally Ann has been great. You've drove down to pick me up. You're going to take me back to the train. Um, we're going to be friends for life and, uh, probably going to be back next year. So I want to thank you. And again, people can reach you at the Ultimate Birth Partner mm-hmm. on Instagram. Yeah. And that's the name of your book as well. Yes. Any last words? No, that's amazing. I'm, I'm just so grateful to, to see you today. And thank you very much for inviting me out. And thank to the Rosen Crown. Is yes. that where we are? 
We hope so. Yeah, we hope it's the Rose and Crown. By the way, why is it that British pubs always have the names of something and something? Like there's know. a famous one that Tolkien and um, C.S. Lewis used to drink at in Oxford, something the eagle and the bird and the eagle or owl and ox and the bird or something. But it was, they're all the same. They're and, always yeah. sending in But something. it's so classic. It's so classic. Walking down the street, little pubs, little markets. Um, everybody seems to be, by the way, Britain is wide open right now. So yeah. by the time this airs, hopefully America has taken a lesson from the Brits. Um, but I doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So everybody, we'll see you. Uh, we'll see you soon. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram. 